Vanessa, I am a volunteer in Bernie Sanders' campaign for president next year. Are you planning to vote in the damn primary? If so, may I have a moment of your time to tell you all about Bernie? Oh, feel the burn, feel the burn, Bernie has the way. The democratic socialist who's here to save the day. Integrity, tuition-free, public college for all. Healthcare and a living wage, yes, Bernie has it all. You know Clinton and Donald and Carson and Christie, Marco and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush and Carly. But do you recall the most gay-friendly candidate of all, Bernie the Vermont Senator has fought for gay rights all along. And if you don't believe us, check out the links after this song. He has stood for marriage equality, he has fought for women's rights too. Bernie thinks the government should never pass laws over a lazy And that was A Very Bernie Christmas, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Joe Polychronus. At the end of the program, we'll hear Bernie from Vermont by Rex Dean. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or pack. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about Bernie2016 at Bernie-2016.com. That's where you'll find links to this podcast episodes, and you can find a link to my Flipboard magazine, called the Bernie for President, where I have over 7,300 articles that I've collected on Bernie and his run. This first piece is something that I saw on Twitter, 
and that was tweeted by Cassandra Fairbanks at Cassandra Rules. October 16, 1973. This is Bernard Sanders for Vermont Spectrum. There are two worlds in America and two worlds here in the state of Vermont. One of these worlds is a world of Richard Nixon and the millionaires and billionaires whom he represents. This is the world of the 2% of the population that owns more than one-third of the personally held wealth in America. The hundred individuals and families that are worth more than $100 million each. The less than 2% of the population that owns over 70% of all publicly held stock and the owners of the 1% of the companies in America that earn over 70% of the total profits. This is the world of men like Nixon himself who earn huge sums of money but pay virtually nothing in taxes because they are the men who make the tax laws which exempt them from paying. These are the people who own the banks and the insurance companies, the utilities and the real estate, the oil companies and the major industries that employ millions of workers. These are the people who own the politicians. They own the state of Vermont and by and large, they own you and me. And once again, that was from October 16, 1973. And it's just another indication of how consistent Bernie has been on his message of inequality in America. This next story is from realprogressivepolitics.com. And it is posted by K.C. Miller. A new Iowa poll released Sunday reveals the excruciatingly close race that Sanders and Hillary are running. Conducted over December 13 to 17, the ABC YouGov poll asked over 3,000 Democrats in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And the result from Iowa Clinton had 50% of the responses who had a preference for uh, for the Democratic nominee, and Sanders had 45%. And the margin of error for this poll was 8.6%, effectively making this a statistical tie. And the results from New Hampshire, Sanders had 56% of the responses in that poll, and Clinton had 42%, and that part of the poll had a 7.5 margin of error. From the New York Times, this is an op-ed by Bernie Sanders. Wall Street is still out of control. Seven years ago, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department bailed out the largest financial institutions in this country because they were considered too big to fail. But almost every one is bigger today than it was before the bailout. If any were to fail again, taxpayers could be on the hook for another bailout, perhaps a larger one this time. To rein in Wall Street, we should begin by reforming the Federal Reserve, which oversees financial institutions and which uses monetary policy to maintain price stability and full employment. 
Unfortunately, an institution that was created to serve all Americans has been hijacked by the very bankers it regulates. The recent decision by the Fed to raise interest rates is the latest example of the rigged economic system. Big bankers and their supporters in Congress have been telling us for years that runaway inflation is just around the corner. They have been dead wrong each time. Raising interest rates now is a disaster for small business owners who need loans to hire more workers and Americans who need more jobs and higher wages. As a rule, the Fed should not raise interest rates until unemployment is lower than 4%. Raising rates must be done only as a last resort, not to fight phantom inflation. And Bernie goes on to discuss more of the issue in this op-ed. If you're interested in that, check out Bernie Sanders to reign in Wall Street, fix the Fed, which is from the New York Times. December 23. And Stephen Rosenfeld writes uh, for Alternet, and this was published by PDAfund.com. It looks like the DNC data spat has spooked Clinton's team. As 2015 comes to a close, the ghost of Barack Obama's stunning 2008 upset win over Hillary Clinton in Iowa is casting a long shadow on the current Democratic presidential race and raising the question, is Bernie Sanders gaining crucial ground? The short answer was provided by Clinton herself in an email blast sent after Saturday's debate. Quote, I don't know how else to say it except by saying it. We could lose the nomination. Unquote. Here are five factors that underscore Clinton's assessment that the first two contests for the 2016 Democratic nomination, the Iowa caucuses, and the New Hampshire primary are within reach for Sanders. Quote, the other candidates on that stage last night would like nothing more than for our team to sit back and relax right now, but I am not taking anything for granted, unquote, Clinton said, before asking supporters to contribute to her campaign. Number one, Sanders is beating Obama's Iowa benchmarks. Bernie is now doing better in Iowa against Clinton than Obama was doing in 2007, according to recent polls. Obama trailed Clinton in Iowa by nearly 30 percentage for most of 2007. And in polls that December, in contrast, the latest CBS polls put Sanders five points behind Clinton in Iowa, according to the Real Clear Politics tally. For December, her lead has averaged 14.9%. Number two, Sanders is holding his New Hampshire lead. In New Hampshire, which is next to Sanders' home state of Vermont, he is leading, but that contest is also tightening, according to the Real Clear Politics. Sanders averaged an 8.6% lead in December, but this is where a different ghost of 2008 looms. That year, the Obama campaign was out-hustled on street corners by sign-carrying Clinton supporters, Many bust in from New York, giving her a surprise victory. Number three, Sanders is breaking campaign donation records. Sanders is showing that he that it is more than possible to run for president with the support of millions of people contributing $25 or less, in contrast to almost all the other 2016 contenders in both parties who have wealthy benefactors. On Monday, his campaign spokeswoman told Democracy Now!, 
that he has 2.3 million contributions, which broke Obama's record of 2.2 million donations. Number four, Democrats' top issues favor Sanders. Unlike Republicans, Democrats are far more focused on domestic issues. In Saturday's debate, Clinton was seen by most pundits as stronger on national security and foreign policy. However, Sanders held his own and rebutted her critiques of his domestic agenda. 27% of Democratic voters say economy and job are the most important issues, according to a mid-December national poll of Democratic voters by Monmouth University. In contrast, national security and terrorism were only cited by 20% of these voters as their top issue, followed by education, gun control, followed by education and gun control. There is an undercurrent here that pulls voters in Sanders' direction. And number five, the DNC data spat has spooked Clinton's team. According to a Politico report, the Democratic National Committee's mishandling of confidential voter files has spooked the Clinton campaign while infuriating the Sanders campaign. Campaigns are unpredictable affairs, even under the most controlled circumstances. This odd development in which the DNC's voter database contractor repeatedly has allowed the notes each campaign has compiled on individual voters in key states to be accessed by their opponents has made the Clinton campaign worry that Sanders staffers have seen their confidential plans to sway likely Iowa and New Hampshire voters. And the next story is from politicususa.com by Jason Easley. Both Clinton and Sanders play possum as Democrats dodge frontrunner status. It seems that neither Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders wants the label of frontrunner before Christmas. The Democratic campaigns each sent out pitches downplaying their chances of fundraising success. The Clinton campaign sent out a clever pitch that sought to use Sanders' success with small donors to motivate their supporters. Quote, Bernie Sanders' campaign is on track to outraise us this month. They say they've brought in more individual contributions than any candidate has ever had at this point in a primary. That means two things. One, more of his supporters are chipping in to fund his campaign, even though we know we have more support. And two, when we go into our first contest in Iowa and New Hampshire, we might not have the resources we'll need to really compete. Quote, the fact is many of our supporters don't think this campaign needs any help. If you're one of those people, I hate to say it, but you're wrong. We are completely reliant on you and your support. The Sanders campaign responded to the Clinton email with their own twist on the message. Quote, first, we have no idea if we will raise more money this quarter than the Clinton campaign. Probably not. What we do know is that we have received more than 2.3 million contributions averaging less than $30 apiece. This is greater than any candidate in history at this point in a White House campaign. We are very gratified by that outpouring of grassroots support from middle class and working families in this country. Second, while we may or may not raise more money than the Clinton campaign, what is certain is that they will have more total money because they have established super PACs, which are raising money from millionaires and billionaires. What we have here is a shrewd battle of downplaying expectations between the top two Democratic campaigns. 
both campaigns could turn out to be correct. Senator Sanders might raise more money in December, but former Secretary Clinton will have more money because of Super PAC support. It was an extremely crafty move by the Clinton campaign to use the fundraising success of Sanders to motivate their supporters. There has always been one concern, which is the same for all frontrunners, and that is the need to keep their supporters motivated. The hope on the part of the Clinton team is that their supporters get an extra jolt from the email. And as mentioned in the earlier story, and as mentioned as I mentioned here last week on this podcast, um, there was a data breach in the database that the DNC manages that controls the list of voters that the DNC has compiled from the states. And both the Sanders campaign and the Clinton campaign, as well as the O'Malley campaign, and also a lot of state campaigns and and perhaps local campaigns even, um, pay to use the voter list um, the voter list data is public data. It's data that the secretaries of state collect as far as their voter rolls go. But each campaign also adds some notes or some detail to the list as they start to use it and start to contact potential voters. It is those notes that are proprietary during the race that is ongoing and it is those notes that were made visible to other campaigns when the firewall that was supposed to protect those notes came down after a, a patch was applied by the vendor. Uh, there's been a lot of speculative writing on what happened and why and who saw what. Um, the speculation is ongoing, but fortunately it's died down to kind of a, a soft background buzz that you get a story here and there on now, but isn't dominating the campaign messages. Um, during the debate, the last debate, uh, it was the first question that was asked to Sanders and he responded to the question and he apologized to Hillary and her campaign for the actions that his staffer took. And he apologized to his own campaign uh, or to his supporters, um, noting that this is not what his campaign is about and it's not something that he has any any time for and would certainly, you know, he acted quickly to uh, dismiss one of his staffers. He suspended two other staffers. I'm not sure what their final resolution has been, if, if one has been determined. But there has been a lot of back and forth and a lot of misinformation and leaked information and stories put out with unknown sources. So I did want to read this one particular piece of information because this is a press release that was put out by the company that is contracted to manage that data. That company is called NGP Van. 
and they put this press release out uh, on December 18th and actually an updated version on December 19th. The security and privacy of our customers' data is a top priority. Over the company's 19-year history, we've not had a problem with that. But on Wednesday, we did have a brief isolated issue for users of one of our products. First, no NGP data was impacted by this situation, nor any action ID or fast action data. No client websites or website data were impacted either. For van clients, no my members, my workers, or my campaigns data was impacted. The one area that was impacted was voter file data. We are confident at this point that no campaigns have access to or have retained any voter file data of any other clients, with one possible exception, one of the presidential campaigns. NGP Van is providing a thorough report to the DNC on what happened and conducting a review to ensure the integrity of the system. Here's what happened. On Wednesday morning, there was a release of Van code. Unfortunately, it contained a bug. For a brief window, the voter data that is always searchable across campaigns in Vote Builder included client scores it should not have on a specific part of the VAN system. So for voters that a user already had access to, that user was able to search by and view, but not export or save, some attributes that came from another campaign. As soon as we realized there was an issue, we immediately mobilized our engineers to investigate the source of the issue. While we investigated the issue, we restricted access to affected areas of the van product for all users and limited access to data exports. Engineers quickly discovered the problem and developed a fix. We immediately began an audit to determine if any users had intentionally or unintentionally gained access to data they normally would not have access to within the limited time frame when the bug was live. Our team removed access to the affected data and determined that only one campaign took actions that could possibly have led it to retaining data to which it should not have, have had access. We are honored to work with the DNC, the Clinton campaign, and the Sanders campaign. At the request of the DNC on Thursday, Sanders campaign access was suspended pending the campaign reporting on its access of the data. NGP Van played no role in making that decision and contractually, contractually could not. Again, this bug was a brief isolated issue and we are not aware of any previous reports of such data being inappropriately available. We look forward to supporting all our Democratic clients and in particular apologize to the DNC, Clinton and Sanders campaigns for our bug Wednesday. We will continue to work with and report to the DNC regarding this issue to ensure that this isolated incident does not recur. We have and will do better. Moving forward, we are adding to our safeguards around these issues. We have thousands of automated tests and extensive code review and release procedures in place to prevent these types of issues and we'll add more. If any clients have any questions, feel free to contact me. Again, we are confident that your data is secure and the security and privacy of your data is a top priority for us. And they posted an update, updating with additional information and clarification. First, a one-page style report containing summary data on a list was saved out of Vote Builder by one Sanders user.
This is what some people have referred to as the export from Vote Builder. As noted below, users were unable to export lists of people. Second, there has been independent confirmation that the NGP van has not received previous notice of data breach regarding NGP van. Josh Uretsky, the former national data director of, for the Sanders campaign, confirmed on MSNBC and also on CNN regarding the previous incident, it wasn't actually with the van vote builder system. It was another system. And then their final update, late last night, we were directed by our client, the DNC, to restore the Sanders campaign's full access to VoteBuilder. NGP Van staff worked through the night to ensure Sanders campaign staff were up and running by early morning. So that is NGP Van's description of what occurred. And I think it's, while, while of course, as the vendor who was responsible for the issue, they may have their own... Uh, desire to spin things in a way that makes them look the best. Um, I think it's probably the most accurate release of information on the issue and additional investigations are ongoing. Um, but at this point, it is clear that the, it's clear to me that um, the Sanders campaign did see data. They did save some of those search results to a place they had access to within the system. That data never less left the system. And that NGP van and the DNC, when they um, cut the Sanders campaign's access to that data, I presume, though it's not stated here, that they removed those files that had been saved. In any event, the Sanders campaign at this point um, has not retained any of that data. So the data as it's described here, and as I best understand it, is not a list of specific voters with the notes attached to each, but is an aggregate of a search of a large number of voters. So essentially, you could search the database of 100,000 voters, and the data that the Sanders campaign should not have seen, but could see because of this, was data that said 200 out of these 100,000 voters are extremely likely to vote for Clinton. And 5,000 of these 100,000 voters are leaning towards Bernie Sanders. Those types of notes that campaigns might keep on voters after they've contacted them, those are the types of things that were seen, but were not seen specific to individual voters from everything I understand, but were seen in aggregate totals. Um, that data for an expert on campaigning could be useful, could be beneficial, um, could help a campaign determine where to spend their money, where to spend their advertising dollars to have the most influence, um, where they need to really push to get out the vote. So uh, it is certainly could be useful data if that data was uh, held and was able to be um, explored in detail by someone who is uh, well-versed in that kind of 
of data, but I think for the limited amount of data that was seen and the short duration for which the Sanders campaign had any visibility to it, I think that the uh, impact here is, is very minimal. And the next story is from ATTN.com. Hours after a grand jury determined that nobody should be indicted in the case of Sandra Bland, a 28-year-old woman who died in a Texas jail cell this summer under suspicious circumstances, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders issued a statement about the racial injustice that he says led to her arrest. Quote, Sandra Bland should not have died while in police custody, Sanders said. There is no doubt in my mind that she, like too many African Americans who die in police custody, would be alive today if she were a white woman. We need to reform a very broken criminal justice system. Bland was pulled over for an improper lane change on July 10 in a scene that was captured on dashcam video. After she refused to put out her cigarette, which was not against the law, Texas Trooper Brian Encina, Encinia forcibly removed her from the car and arrested her. Three days later, she was found hanged in a Waller County jail cell. While authorities ruled Bland's death a suicide, family and friends raised questions about the official account, contending that Bland was not suicidal and had recently moved to Texas to start a new job. The case gained national attention, prompting protests and investigations by the FBI and Texas Rangers. However, on Monday, a grand jury announced that nobody, none of the officers or Waller County Jail employees related to the case, should face felony charges in Bland's death. The jurors will reconvene on January 6 to decide on misdemeanor matters. Sanders has actively cited Bland's case as an example of racial inequality in U.S. policing, referencing her name in national debates and in interviews concerning the need for criminal justice reform. He believes that Bland would have been treated differently and may not have been arrested at all if she were white. Compared to white drivers, black drivers are about 31% more likely to be pulled over in the U.S., 81% more likely to not be given a reason for being pulled over, and 170% more likely to be searched, according to 2014 data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Following the release of the dashcam video of Bland Traffic Stop, Sanders became the first candidate to speak out against the arrest. He said, quote, this video of the arrest of Sandra Bland shows totally outrageous police behavior. No one should be yanked from her car, thrown to the ground, assaulted and arrested for a minor traffic stop. The result is that three days later she is dead in her jail cell. This video highlights once again why we need real police reform. People should not die for a minor traffic infraction. This type of police abuse has become an all-too-common occurrence for people of color, and it must stop. And that piece was written by Kyle Yeager. And this next piece is from The Hill, thehill.com. 
and is written by Brent Badowski. Stop the presses. According to a new poll by Quinnipiac University on Tuesday, Senator Bernie Sanders destroys Republican candidate Donald Trump in a general election by 13 percentage points. In this new poll, Sanders has 51% to Trump's 38%. If this margin held in a general election, Democrats would almost certainly regain control of the United States Senate and very possibly the House of Representatives. It is high time and long overdue for television networks such as CNN to end their obsession with Trump and report the all-important fact that in most polls, both Hillary Clinton and Sanders would defeat Trump by landslide margins. In the new Quinnipiac poll, Clinton would defeat Trump by 7 percentage points, which is itself impressive and would qualify as a landslide, while the Sanders lead of 13 points would bring a landslide of epic proportions. It is noteworthy that in this Quinnipiac poll, Sanders runs so much stronger than Clinton against Trump. It is also noteworthy and important that both Sanders and Clinton run so far ahead of Trump in general election matchup polling, and it is profoundly important and revealing that Sanders would defeat Trump by such a huge margin that analysts would be talking about national political realignment and new progressive era in American history if an enlightened candidate such as Sanders would defeat a retrograde race-baiting candidate such as Trump by a potentially epic and historic margin. It is time for the mainstream media to end their obsession with Trump and their virtual news blackout of the Sanders campaign when discussing presidential campaign polling. How about from now on, when any analyst on television discusses how strong Trump allegedly is, that it be emphasized that his strength is only within the GOP, and that, in a general election, the real heavyweight champion of presidential polling is Bernie Sanders, not Donald Trump. And this next piece is from Politico.com by Annie Carney. Hillary Clinton's donors say they think Bernie Sanders will raise more money in the fourth quarter than their candidate for the first time ever. A testament to the underdog's online cash juggernaut and a harbinger of donor fatigue among the frontrunner's backers. Clinton campaign officials said she remains on track to reach her goal of $100 million for the primary by the end of the year. She had already collected $77 million by the end of the third quarter. But Sanders nearly matched Clinton in the most recent quarter, raising an eye-popping $26 million to Clinton's $28 million. And multiple fundraising sources on the Clinton's team told Politico they expect the Vermont senator to beat her when the next financial disclosures are filed on January 30, just before the Iowa caucuses. Quote, People are feeling very complacent and more reluctant to contribute because they don't take Bernie Sanders that seriously, top Clinton donor Alan Patrickoff told Politico. Quote, They look at the other side and think, how could anyone possibly back any one of them? The attitude of sensible people is that she's the only one who makes any sense. None of the donors or campaign insiders Politico spoke with on Monday disputed the notion that Sanders was on track to beat them in the end-of-year cash race. 
Lowballing your candidate's fundraising totals is a time-honored practice in presidential politics. If Clinton somehow manages to come out on top, her campaign can portray the quarter as exceeding expectations. No easy feat in a race where she is leading Sanders by 20 to 30 percentage points nationally. But the concern appears to be real. Over the past few days, Clinton's advisors have taken steps to stoke donor enthusiasm. Bill and Chelsea Clinton, who on Monday announced she is pregnant with her second child, have stepped up their fundraising for the campaign. They are expected to become even more involved in the campaign beginning in January. Quote, Let Bernie outraise her. He's not going to be the nominee, a top donor said. Quote, the idea that Donald Trump or Ted Cruz could actually be the president is going to be the greatest fundraising mechanism in the history of the world, and it's just too early for that. Still, Sanders' surge has less to do with a Clinton swoon. She's raising cash at a respectable clip than the Vermont Independence wildfire appeal to small-money donors, which reminds many Clinton veterans of Barack Obama's surprising fundraising prowess during the 2008 campaign. For its part, Sanders' campaign has been touting its large number of small contributions as a sign of the grassroots power behind his candidacy. On Saturday, Sanders announced his campaign broke a record by bringing in more individual contributions than any presidential candidate in history. Plus, Sanders' team says it raised more than $1 million after the Democratic National Committee temporarily suspended the campaign's access to its own voter files over a data data breach last week. While Sanders has been building up a grassroots list of small donors who can be tapped and tapped again for donations throughout the campaign, Clinton's team targeted its list of core supporters early and had many donors write the maximum checks of $2,700 months ago. Those of us who snapped, quote, those of us who snapped to attention when she snaps her fingers, they tapped into that a long time ago, said one top Clinton donor who has hosted a house party for the candidate. But the campaign is aware that maxing out its donors early could become a long-term issue and is actively trying to court a new crowd. As it dispatched high-profile surrogates like former Obama campaign manager David, David Plouffe, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, political consultant James Carville, and former Clinton aide Lisa Caputo to host salons, free events where they talk about the campaign and take questions from attendees, hoping to inspire fresh donor faces to become involved so definitely sanders uh very very significant success in fundraising has in part put uh hillary clinton's or or taken aback hillary clinton's campaign and her own uh fundraising efforts in the fact that sanders has been uh starting to keep pace with her and maybe exceeding her ability to fundraise in this latest quarter. And this story is from theburnreport.com by G.A. Casebeer. A new poll came out this morning, and while it shows Bernie Sanders in fine shape in New Hampshire with a sizable lead, the CBS poll also shows Sanders five points behind in Iowa. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that Bernie's biggest block of voters, the millennials, barely were counted at all. In fact, if you take a look at the chart below, you'll see that out of the 1,252 people, 
that were polled in Iowa. 850 of them were age 45 and above. In the 19 to 29 age group, just 194 were counted in this latest poll. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Bernie is in much better shape than the mainstream media will allow themselves to admit. That begs the question, just how much support does Bernie Sanders actually have with the millennial crowd? Well, it's a difficult question to answer since most traditional polls use landline phones and even an online poll such as the latest one by CBS apparently aren't asking many under eight, under the age of 35 who they'd like to see get the nomination. We could look at mock election, elections for an answer, perhaps. In Iowa, in regards to Iowa though, Sanders does extremely well with the younger generation. He won the recent Iowa Youth Caucus in a landslide. So this is one of the challenges of polls, and it is a challenge that the pollsters uh, do try to account for. Um, they do break the polling data up that they collect, try to find out how much support each group is providing or each group uh, provides to each particular candidate, and then they make adjustments to their polling to try to account for some of those uh, differences. But if, which is... There's a fair chance that uh, younger voters are undercounted. There's certainly a group of voters that is not counted in any of these polls, and that is voters that uh, are going to cross the aisle. And voters that have typically voted Republican in the past or lean Republican generally aren't included in the Democratic polling. Um and so they're they're undercounted in these polls and i i for example know 3 of my own family members who have always voted republican um or virtually always voted republican in the past um in particular in the primaries they certainly did who all are either definitely voting for Bernie. Two of the three are definitely voting for Bernie. One of the three is leaning towards Bernie, but is looking for more information. Um, so, you know, that's uh, just a uh, anecdotal story. But these are, those are members of my extended family that um, are leaning in that direction, none of them would have been in any poll for the Democratic primaries because virtually all the polls are for Democratic voters, um, people who have voted Democrat in the past, or people who are leaning Democrat uh, now. So these are people who, who generally would not be counted in a poll for the Democratic nomination. So I think there is definitely something to the fact that there are um, elements of the uh, voting population out there who generally the polls do not account for. And a large number of those people would be or may be supporting Bernie. This next story is... From the New Hampshire Labor News. It's nhlabornews.com. 
The Industrial Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 1837 today endorsed U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders for president in the New Hampshire Democratic primary and the Maine Democratic caucus, citing his long-standing commitment to addressing the needs of working families. IBEW 1837 represents more than 1,600 workers at electric utilities and broadcasting stations across Maine and New Hampshire. The Dover-based union's endorsement builds on growing momentum for Sanders' New Hampshire campaign, which has also secured the support of SEIU 1984, IBEW 490, and the American Postal Postal Workers Union Local 230, and SEIU 560. It's interesting to see the SEIU locals uh, throwing their support behind Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire the National SEIU Union did support Hillary Clinton. Quote, Bernie Sanders has a 35-year record standing shoulder-to-shoulder with workers and supporting the labor movement, said IBEW Local 1837 President Bill Tarallo. Quote, how our members vote is their personal decision, but our e-board wanted to recognize the tremendous work that Senator Sanders has done supporting the right of unions to organize, fighting against unfair trade deals, and in support of higher wages for working people. He has the best labor record of any presidential candidate in more than a generation. The union's e-board is made up of rank-and-file workers elected by the members to represent them. They also applauded Bernie Sanders' support of IBEW and CWA union members during the recent successful strike at Fairpoint in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont, where he joined striking workers on the picket line and demanded the company agree to a fair contract. Quote, Beyond his stellar labor record, Bernie Sanders has defended Social Security and stood up to Wall Street, Tarallo continued. His support of public education and our nation's veterans also deserves our recognition. The IBEW Local 1837 endorsement does not include any financial support. No IBEW Local 1837 union dues money is ever donated to political candidates, and it is prohibited by federal law. Quote, whether it's fighting to raise the minimum wage, opposing bad trade deals, or consistently supporting the right of working people across the country to organize, Bernie's priorities are workers' priorities, said State Director Julia Barnes. We're proud to receive the support of more workers today and look forward to continuing, continuing our work to bring about the political revolution our country needs. So during the debate, the last debate that was on December 19th, the week before Christmas on a Saturday night that had the lowest uh, viewership of any presidential debate so far, with only 6.7 million people tuning in to watch it, um, all of which, in my opinion, was a plan by the DNC in determining when those debates occurred to uh, minimize viewership on purpose in order to prevent anyone challenging the front runner um, from really catching on and really catching the eye of a large number of viewers. I mean, the I believe one of the Republican debates had 
in the neighborhood of 18 million viewers. And this Democratic debate debate had 6.7 million viewers. So um, it certainly was uh, not an accident that this debate ended up at a time where competition for um, people's attention was greatly diverted um, by other things. It was Star Wars Movie Weekend, um, and that diverted quite a lot of attention from a lot of people. That movie taking in uh, the biggest box office opening weekend of any movie ever. And I there may have been a uh, football game at the same time. I may have been mixing that up with a different debate. The, the Iowa debate, I think, was scheduled at the same time as a major college uh, football game out there that took a lot of attention away from the debate. Um, so if you didn't watch the debate or hear about it afterwards, one of the things that uh, Bernie challenged Clinton with was <clears throat> her hawkishness as Secretary of State in deposing um, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya and basically uh, supporting his overthrow and he was killed in that action. Um, but then leaving a, a big gap behind and leaving an opening and there now is a significant uh, presence of ISIS in Libya. Um, something that uh, didn't exist before Gaddafi was uh, overthrown. And so he took Hillary to task for that type of regime change with um, no or not enough attention paid to the consequences of regime change. This, you know, the United States history is rife with similar events uh, across the globe where we've supported regime change and and worse leaders or vacuums that we have created have led to worse situations than existed under those leaders who, who definitely were uh, sometimes um, dictatorial and tyrannical leaders who we were deposing but hillary shot back and said that uh senator sanders had actually voted for that regime change she he had voted for uh the un to get involved and for the un to create the no-fly zone that uh allowed us to get deeper in there so I found the resolution, and it was a resolution that was passed by the 112th Congress. A resolution does not have any enforcement structure. It is not a binding law. It is essentially, this is the feeling of the Senate. This is the feeling of the body. Um, it certainly, uh, in this case, was used as an excuse for the Obama administration um, to take significant military action in Libya. 
But here's what that resolution said. And Senator Sanders absolutely supported this resolution. Not only did he vote for this resolution, he was a co-sponsor of the resolution. And this, uh, let's see if this has numbered. I don't see a particular number on it. It was from the 112th Congress, first session. Resolution strongly condemning the gross and systematic violations of human rights in Libya, including violent attacks on protesters demanding democratic reforms and for other purposes. Whereas Muammar Gaddafi and his regime have engaged in gross and systematic violations of human rights, including violent attacks on protesters demanding democratic reforms that have killed thousands of people. Whereas Muammar Gaddafi, his sons and supporters have instigated and authorized violent attacks on Libyan protesters using warplanes, helicopters, snipers, and soldiers, and continue to threaten the life and well-being of any person voicing opposition to the Gaddafi regime. Whereas the United Nations Security Council and the international community have condemned the violence and use of force against civilians in Libya, and on February 26, 2011, the United Nations Security Council unanimously agreed to refer the situation in Libya to the International Criminal Court, impose an arms embargo on the Libyan Arab Jamahiriya, including the provisional provision of mercenary personnel, freeze the financial assets of Muammar Gaddafi and certain family members, and impose a travel ban on Gaddafi, certain family members, and senior advisors. Whereas Muammar Gaddafi has ruled Libya for more than 40 years by banning and brutally opposing any individual or group opposing the ideology of his 1969 revolution, criminalizing the peaceful exercise and expression and of expression and association, refusing to permit independent journalists and lawyers' organizations, and engaging in torture and extrajudicial executions, including the 1,200 detainees killed in Abu Salim prison in June 1996. Whereas Libya took formal responsibility for the terrorist attack that brought down Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing 270 people, 189 of whom were U.S. citizens, and highly-ranking Libyan officials have indicated that Muammar Gaddafi personally ordered the attack. And whereas Libya was elected to the UN Human Rights Council on May 13, 2010, for a period of three years, sending a demoralizing message of indifference to the families of victims of the Pan Am Flight 103 and Libyan citizens that have endured repression, arbitrary arrests, and forced disappearance or physical assault in their struggle to obtain basic human and civil rights. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the United States Senate, one, applauds the courage of the Libyan people in standing up against the brutal dictatorship of Muammar Gaddafi and for demanding democratic reforms, transparent governance, and respect for basic human and civil rights. Two, strongly condemns the gross and systematic violations of human rights in Libya, including violent attacks on protesters demanding democratic reforms. 3. Calls on Muammar Gaddafi to desist from further violence, recognize the Libyan people's demand for a democratic change, resign his position, and permit a peaceful transition to democracy governed by respect for human and civil rights and the right of the people to choose their government in free and fair elections. 4. Calls on the Gaddafi regime to immediately release persons that have been arbitrarily detained to cease the intimidation, harassment, and detention 
of peaceful protesters, human rights defenders, and journalists to ensure civilian safety and to guarantee access to human rights and and humanitarian organizations. Five, welcomes the unanimous vote of the United Nations Security Council on Resolution 1970 referring the situation in Libya to the International Criminal Court, imposing an arms embargo on the Libyan army, Jamahiria, freezing the assets of Qaddafi and family members, and banning international travel by Qaddafi members of his family and senior advisors. Six, urges the Qaddafi regime to abide by UN Security Council Resolution 1970 and ensure the safety of foreign nationals and their assets and to facilitate the departure of those wishing to leave the country as well as the safe passage of humanitarian and medical supplies, humanitarian agencies, and workers into Libya in order to assist the Libyan people. 7. Urges the United Nations Security Council to take such further action as may be necessary to protect civilians in Libya from attack, including the possible imposition of a no-fly zone over Libyan territory. 8. Welcomes the African Union's condemnation of the, quote, disproportionate use of force in Libya, unquote, and urges the Union to take action to address the human rights crisis in Libya, and to ensure that member states, particularly those bordering Libya, are in full compliance with the arms embargo imposed by the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1970, including the ban on the provision of armed mercenary personnel. 9. Welcomes the decision of the, UN, of the United Nations Human Rights Council to recommend Libya's suspension from the Council and urges the United Nations General Assembly to vote to suspend Libya's rights of membership in the Council. And 10. Welcomes the attendance of Secretary of State Clinton at the United Nations Human Rights Council meeting in Geneva and 1. Urges the Council's assumption of a country mandate for Libya that employs a special rapporteur on the human rights situations in Libya. And 2. Urges the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations to advocate for improving United Nations Human Rights Council membership criteria at the next United Nations General Assembly in New York City to exclude gross and systematic violators of human rights. 11. Welcomes the outreach that has begun by the United States government to Libyan opposition figures and supports an orderly, irreversible transition to a legitimate democratic government in Libya. And that is the end of that resolution on Libya that uh, Hillary Clinton said that Bernie Sanders supported, which he certainly did support. He was a co-sponsor and voted for it. But Hillary Clinton said that this resolution um, supported, she said specifically that it supported the no-fly zone, which it supports the United Nations in Creating the no-fly zone if it deemed it necessary. Let's see if I can see that exact uh, language here again. So the most significant um, support that this provided was in item number seven. Urges the United Nations Security Council to take such further action as may be necessary to protect civilians in Libya from attack, including the possible imposition of a no-fly zone over Libyan territory. Nothing in this resolution, which, as I mentioned, resolution of the Senate or House is not a binding legal uh, document. It's not a law that was passed. Uh, 
but nothing in this supports the violent overthrow of um, Muammar Gaddafi. It all um, urges Muammar Gaddafi to uh, stop the actions that it outlines that he has taken against uh, people in Libya. It asks the UN to... It, it actually uh, kind of praises the UN for the steps they had already taken and says if they deem it necessary to take the further step of supporting a no-fly zone, that uh, it supported that. But it in nowhere calls for um, Muammar Gaddafi, Gaddafi to be overthrown. It does call for him to resign. Um, and it is uh, obviously not likely for someone in Muammar Gaddafi's position to acquiesce to that type of a uh, a call from a foreign government body. So it's just not not a clear not as clear cut as uh, Hillary Clinton made it sound in her response to Bernie in the debate that he supported the action that was taken. He supported action being taken, but not specifically the action that uh, that the U.S. government eventually took in supporting the rebels that uh, overthrew Gaddafi, created a vacuum there with no strong leadership to come in, no democratic leadership to come in. Regime changes, if not, you know, a democratic process, it is a major problem. If you're going to militarily overthrow someone and impose new leaders that aren't democratically elected and democratically supported by a significant portion of the population, and even even those that are supported by a significant portion of the population. Um, you know, the overthrow of an existing government much more often than not uh, leads to new abuses by the new people that get put into power. It's a terrible way to manage foreign policy. Bernie understands that. Um, he is one of the best candidates out there for non-intervention, but not certainly the best candidate that exists or, or the, the strongest person that could, um, be running, uh, as far as non-intervention goes, he has supported interventions. He supports them less often, um, and is more concerned about their repercussions, it seems, than, most than certainly uh, Hillary Clinton, and I would say almost all of the Republicans running. Um, Ron Paul, not Ron Paul, uh, Rand Paul, uh, Ron Paul's son, who is running on the Republican side, is one of the few voices on that side who has uh, non-interventionalist um, policies in a platform. 
but uh we would certainly be better off and the the world would most likely be much better off if we were not the interventionalist um country that uh or government that we are and this episode will wrap up with another bernie brief bernie briefs are some short videos that bernie has been recording on specific topics and this bernie brief is on income inequality hi this is senator bernie sanders i need your help one of the reasons our campaign is doing so well is that we are discussing the real issues facing the american people something that most politicians and the media just don't do in fact one of the great concerns i have had for many many years is that the corporate media looks at elections as if they were a baseball game in terms of who's winning or losing or how much money a candidate is raising or even a soap opera you know what kind of dumb things somebody said yesterday that we can put all over CNN but in my view what this election should be about what our democracy should be about is a debate concerning the enormous problems facing our people and in fact our entire planet and that's what i intend to be focusing on throughout this campaign now today i'm going to be talking about the incredibly important issue of income and wealth inequality and i very much would appreciate your help in getting this video out to your friends and to your family the economic reality for most americans is pretty clear for the last 40 years the american middle class has been disappearing and more americans are living in poverty than at almost any point in our nation's history Today, real median family income is almost $5,000 less than it was in 1999. Today, the typical male worker is making $783 less last year than he did 42 years ago after adjusting for inflation. The typical female worker is making $1,337 less than she did in 2007 despite the modest gains of the affordable care act 35 million americans continue to have no health insurance and even more are underinsured and today embarrassingly the united states of america has by far the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major industrialized country on earth and while the middle class continues to disappear over the last 2 years just as an example the wealthiest 15 americans in this country 15 people and that includes bill gates the koch brothers sheldon adelson and a bunch of others these guys have seen their wealth increase by 170 billion dollars that's just an increase in what they previously had in a 2 year period to put this in perspective that increase in wealth for the top 15 Americans is more wealth than is owned by the bottom 40% of our people and it is double what this country spends on nutrition programs to feed over 40 million Americans 
Meanwhile, since 2005, the typical middle-class family has seen its wealth go down by more than 36%, from $130,000 in 2005 to just $81,000 today. We have witnessed an enormous transfer of wealth from the middle class and the poor to multimillionaires and billionaires. Since 1985, the share of our nation's wealth owned by the bottom 90%, 90% has plummeted from 36% to just 23%. Now, what does this mean? It means that if the bottom 90%, the vast majority of our people, had simply maintained the same share of wealth they had 30 years ago, they would have over $10 trillion more today than they in fact do have. Now, where did that wealth go? Well, about $8 trillion of it has gone to a tiny, tiny sliver of the wealthiest people in our country. Over the past 30 years, the top one-tenth of one percent, not one percent, one-tenth of one percent, has seen its share of our nation's wealth more than double, from 10 percent to 22 percent. The very, very rich are getting incredibly richer, the middle class is disappearing, and the poor are getting poorer. That is the tragic reality of our economy today. This is the Robin Hood principle in reverse. We are taking from the poor and working families and seeing that wealth go to a handful of the richest people in this country. That is wrong, that is unacceptable, and that is not what the American economy should be about. The concentration of wealth at the very top is more than bad economics. It is immoral, and it is unsustainable. Instead of growing an economy with good wages, where anyone can unlock their useful potential, we are undermining our middle class, undermining the needs of our kids, undermining the heart of our democracy. Now, if we are serious about reversing income in wealth inequality, what are some of the things that we need to do? First, we have got to make sure that anybody in America who works 40 hours a week is not living in poverty. And that means that over a period of a few years, we have got to increase the minimum wage to a living wage of $15 an hour. Furthermore, we need to make certain that we have pay equity for women workers. Absurd that women continue to make 78 cents on the dollar compared to men. Second of all, we have to put the American people back to work. And that means a trillion-dollar job program to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, which will result in up to 13 million decent-paying jobs. Third, we need a tax system which is fair. And among other things, we need to put a tax on Wall Street speculation so that every American, regardless of income, can go to college tuition-free. Now, as many of you know, seven years ago, the taxpayers of this country, as a result of the greed and recklessness and illegal behavior on Wall Street, our country, our middle class bailed them out. Well, now it is Wall Street's turn to make sure that they help the middle class of this country 
and that all of our people, regardless of income, can get to college. In my view, a society in which so many have so little, while so few have so much, is not what the United States of America is supposed to be about. If you agree, please make sure to share this video and the facts in this video with your friends and your neighbors, but also with your Republican co-workers and the Republicans that you know. To my mind, it is a very sad state of affairs that we have too many working-class Republicans who continue to vote against their own best interest. And my hope is that by engaging in a good, honest, straightforward dialogue with our Republican friends, we can win them over so that they can help us create a government which works for all of the people and not just the Koch brothers and a handful of billionaires. So once again, thank you very much for listening and thanks for your help in getting this video out. Take care. And that was Bernie Sanders from the Bernie Brief on income inequality. And you can actually watch that video. You can see the graphics that go along with what Bernie has to say there, as well as see the other Bernie briefs that have been recorded on other topics. You can go to the berniesanders.com and see all of those. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. You can send me a message if you want to reach out to me at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And you can check out um, more about this podcast, take a look at some back episodes, and follow some links on my website, Bernie-2016.com. And we are going out tonight with Bernie from Vermont by Rex Dean. You can find that on the Rex Dean YouTube page. Thanks for listening.
are talking about him are so hypnotized by the vision health care for us all a living wage education give little guys a chance tell all your friends and family about him and ask them to tell all of theirs people you meet when you start talking about him are so hypnotized by the vision he can actually win with young and poor and you and me a rainbow rocks the vote you and me Vermont. <laughs> Thank you very much.